I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Peter chapter 3. In a moment, we'll read, we're, we're focusing this morning on verses 13 through 17, but I'm going to start the reading back in verse 10 because the text for this morning connects very well and very closely with the text that we looked at last week. While you're flipping there, I want you to, I want to talk to you about Joe. Joe is a model citizen. Joe honors the king, he obeys all the laws, and he dutifully pays his taxes. And one day, though, Joe is wrongly accused of breaking the law. And at the trial, he begs for the king to pardon him and explains how he has always followed the law faithfully. Nonetheless, poor Joe is found guilty and punished. Well, why? Well, Joe loves the king, but not his own. Joe follows the law of another land. Joe is in a different country, but is trying to live according to the laws of the other country's law. His appeal was to another law and another king. Now, that would not be a very smart way to go about living your life. You can't live like you were under one ruler and his laws while actually living under a completely separate kingdom and its laws. And as silly as that illustration is, it's not as crazy as it may first appear. The entire world is living delusionally serving the wrong Lord. God is on the throne And yet they try to serve themselves or some other form of idol instead of God. And even unbelievers are not always immune to this struggle. We say Christ is Lord, and yet we live as if the culture, the government, or even the fear of man is the real God. So in the text for this morning, we will see that Peter addresses the heart and its allegiances. Our ability to suffer well and evangelize is dependent upon who we truly honor as Lord in our lives. And one thing will become clear in this passage, that because Christ is Lord, you must honor him. So with that introduction, let's read 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 10 and then through 17. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray that you would help us to understand this text, that you would speak through us, that you would speak to our hearts by your Holy Spirit. And you would help us to understand how it is better to suffer for doing good and how it is that we can best submit to your will and honor Christ in doing so. We ask all these things in his name. Amen. So verses 8 through 12 and 13 through 17 are very closely connected in this passage, and that's why I had us read part of the previous section. 
In verses 10 through 12, Peter quoted from Psalm 34 to teach us that we must pursue doing good. And as we grow in the faith and become more like Christ, we are to pursue more good works. Now, this is set in sharp contrast in that passage with those who live wicked lives. The psalmist told us that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and that his ears are open to their prayers. But meanwhile, God's face is set against the wicked in judgment to destroy them. So seeking to follow the Lord is the path to blessing while rebellion leads to suffering and death. So if God is for us, really, who can be against us? That is a background for understanding what Peter will talk about next in verses 13 through 17. So we'll look at two points. The first point is this. Because Christ is Lord, you must not fear. So Peter begins in verse 13 with another encouragement for doing good. If you live a holy life and do what is right, who is going to harm you? Well, the rhetorical question requires a negative answer. Because if you are being kind and respectful to all, helping others and obeying the authorities, then what can you be punished for? Well, ordinarily, nothing. And so a reason to seek a holy life is so that you won't incur any punishment for it. Peter describes this kind of attitude as being zealous for good. To be zealous or a zealot is essentially the same thing. A zealot is someone who is fiercely enthusiastic and passionate about something. Today, we often use that word in the sense of somebody who is more of a radical. But to be zealous is really to be overly enthused or passionate about something, and sometimes to the point of causing problems. But if it's a good thing, it will lead to good results. And here, we are to be zealous for good. We need to have a strong and sincere devotion to what is right. We need to be passionate about living lives that are pleasing to the Lord, not to earn our salvation, but as a result of it. Paul writes in Titus 2.14 that Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. So this is one of our main purposes as believers is to be zealous for doing good. We do good for the Lord's sake, not man's. But a nice side effect of living a holy life is that we will face far less risk of harm than if we are engaged in evil living. And while this is the general rule of thumb for holy living, it is not an absolute statement. The norm we should expect is that most will treat us well for doing good. However, there are times when we may be punished for holy living by the world. And Peter knew this well. But despite knowing that living good lives may well bring punishment at times, he does not discourage us from seeking good. Instead, he encourages us all the more to continue doing good, regardless of the treatment we receive from men. Now, in this passage, verses 14 and 17 are parallel verses that really say the same thing in two different ways. They provide a nice bookend to this section, giving the reason to pursue a holy life even in the midst of possible persecution. So everything in between is really reinforcing that same point. So we're going to look at those two verses, verses 14 and 17, next. In verse 14, Peter presents us with the exception to the rule. He writes that even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake. Now, if here does not mean that you might or might not suffer. If you're a believer, you will suffer for your faith at some point in your life. Suffering will occur at points in the lives 
of the vast majority of believers, and some will suffer more than others. But whether you have suffered greatly or hardly at all for good deeds, Peter has encouragement for you. He says that if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. Now, doesn't that seem like a bit of a harsh irony to tell those suffering that they are blessed? What does Peter mean? How is the believer blessed when suffering for righteousness' sake? Well, the answer to that question is what this passage and the rest of chapter 3 are going to build and expand upon. And one way to answer in this section of the text is by looking at verse 17. That verse tells us that it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. So part of the blessedness we are called to do is to obey good no matter the cost. Goodness is inherently a blessed thing. So regardless of the outcome, there is beauty and there is value in doing what is right. Righteousness is worth pursuing regardless of what the consequences may be on this earth. So which is better, to be in prison for life for sharing the gospel or for murder? Now, the consequence in this example is the same regardless. However, one action took a life while the other is capable of producing new life. So the beauty of righteousness is in and of itself worthy of whatever cost may be wrongly imposed upon us for pursuing it. Goodness is worthy of our suffering. Even beyond that, verse 17 explains a reality that is a huge blessing for the believer to understand. Do you notice the phrase, if that should be God's will? Joy, happiness, and blessing, and even suffering only come as a result of the providence of God. All things come to pass exactly according to his plan. And he is able to use even the wicked desires of unbelievers to accomplish his purposes. And that should bring you great hope when times of trial and persecution come because God has purposed them for you. So no trial in your life ever catches God off guard. Nothing got by his security or distracted his attention from protecting you. As verse 12 says, his eyes are on the righteous continually. So if you suffer for your own wickedness or stupidity, you should not expect any reward or blessing from God. But if you suffer for righteousness, you can expect God to be at work in the situation. And we're not told exactly how he will work in each situation or trial in our lives. But we are told that if we suffer for righteousness sake, it is according to his holy will. Now, the Greek puts a lot of emphasis on this line, literally translates something like God's will wills. So while we may be ignorant of his purposes in our suffering, we can know that he has one. He could use our suffering as a way to evangelize and witness to those around us. He could be training us to depend more greatly on him. He might be growing our love for him and breaking our love for this fallen world. And he may well be doing all of those things and many more. And in all these ways and more, even with unjust punishment by unbelievers, we are blessed by God. And the second part of verse 14 explains more ways in which we are blessed. As you understand that you are blessed, even in the midst of suffering, Peter gives two results. And if you can grasp that you are blessed by God, regardless of what evil men do to you, then you will be freed up to follow these commands. Peter tells you to have no fear of them, nor be troubled. The first phrase literally says, the fear of them do not fear. He uses repetition to drive home that point. 
And then the second phrase in there, nor be troubled, refers to your emotional state. So don't even let them upset you. Don't take their attacks to heart or be discouraged by them. As a result of having God's blessing upon you, or one result, is that you no longer need to fear evil men. No matter who is persecuting you, they have no power over God. They cannot undo his will or alter it in any way. What God has decreed is absolute and final. Therefore, you do not need to fear lowly, finite creatures. This matches closely to something Jesus said in Matthew 10. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. To have God's blessing on you means all the curses of this world will come to no avail. That's nothing new to believers. God promised this very thing all the way back to Abraham in Genesis 12:3. He said, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. For those who belong to God, all things work together for good, because the Lord himself ensures that they will. In the book of Numbers, the pagan sorcerer Balaam was hired by King Balak to curse Israel so that Balak could then defeat them. But as God spoke through Balaam, it became clear that no curse could be pronounced against God's people. Balaam said in chapter 23 of Numbers, How can I curse what God has not cursed? How can I denounce what the Lord has not denounced? For I see them from atop the rocky cliffs, and I watch them from the hills. Behold, the people dwelling apart, not reckoning themselves among the nations. The church is not of this world or of the nations that she could even be cursed by any man. God's decree for his people is blessing and it cannot be turned back or undone. In order for that to happen, the Lord would have to cease to exist. He would have to cease to exist before those whom the Father has called, the Son is saved, and the Spirit is sealed could be cursed. The church is the Israel of God and is blessed to have the very presence of God dwelling among her. So with all those glorious truths about the church, what ammunition could the world possibly conjure to negate his blessings? Well, the answer is that there is absolutely nothing they can do to truly or eternally harm the saints. Therefore, he can give the command not to fear mankind or the pitiful persecution that mankind brings with him. In the end, his attempts will be thoroughly impotent. The wiles of the devil against the saints will be brought to nothing. So that's the first point. The second point is this. Because Christ is Lord, you must be ready. And the question will be, ready for what? We just talked about the command not to fear man. And that was a negative command telling us not to fear. In verse 15, Peter adds a positive counterpoint to that command. The positive command is that you must honor Christ the Lord as holy. Now, the commands may seem very different and perhaps even disconnected. However, they're really two sides of the same coin. We were created for worship. God made us with the capacity and purpose of praising him as our God. That is the central element of who we are as human beings made in his image. We are worshiping creatures. But what happens when the worshiping man is lost in sin and refuses to praise his creator? Well, he doesn't stop worshiping. He cannot stop worshiping. 
He is completely incapable of ceasing from worship. What really happens is that the rebellious person replaces the Lord in their hearts with something else. That could be the gods of false religions, money, power, or even other humans. Xi Jinping, which I'm probably mispronouncing, the leader of China and the whole Communist Party, they have embarked on a quest to rewrite the Bible over the next 10 years. And they're rewriting it to fit their own communist ideology. And the Ten Commandments, even, are being replaced with famous phrases from Z himself. The phrase replacing the first commandment will be resolutely guard against the infiltration of Western ideology. He is attempting to replace the worship of the Lord with himself and the state. But he's not alone in his vain attempts. Most unbelievers worship themselves or others around them. Even amongst believers, we can sometimes replace God with ourselves or with others. We've already talked about many ways in which men have no real power. God is in control, therefore we don't need to fear man. But there's actually a bigger reason why we cannot fear man. Fearing man and honoring Christ at the same time is impossible. If you fear man, then you are placing him as the God of your heart. Jesus says in Matthew 6 that no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. Jesus must be honored and set apart in your heart because he will not share the throne. Really, this is very similar to repentance, where you must cast out the evil and then put on the good. Here you must cast out the fear of man so that you may honor Christ in your heart. Accepting the lordship of Christ means placing him above all others as the only supreme being and as the only one worthy of your worship. In a few moments, we'll see what Peter says about defending your faith before the world. But if you do not understand what it means to honor Christ in your heart, then you will not be able to follow or obey the following commands. The foundational element of the believer must be a rejection of the world's power and influence over you and a complete submitting to Christ as Lord. But this is not something that you only do when you first come to the faith. The call of these verses is actually a continual process of removing the fear of man and putting on honoring of Christ. Fearing what people can do to us is, of course, the simpler sin to spot. But there's another form of this sin that you may not always recognize. We can all be people pleasers at times. We often care too much about what others think of us and alter our behavior accordingly. Now, it's not wrong to want to be likable, but if your heart depends on others approving of you, then you are fearing man instead of honoring Christ. And that, too, is a breach of Peter's commands. You need to go to Christ in repentance and honor him above what anyone else thinks of you. And whether you think you do this or not, I encourage you to examine your hearts for that sin. Because it is a sneaky and often overlooked sin in our hearts. And I know it's one that I have fallen into many times. And chances are you will fail in this way at some point or another. But no matter where you find this sin or how severe it may be, the answer is always the same. Do not fear man. Honor Christ. Respect him above all other things. Seek to please Jesus more than anyone else in this world. Set him apart as the single most important thing in your life, and you will be obeying the commands given here. 
As I said earlier in this point, obeying this two-step process is crucial for the rest of the commands in verses 15 and 16. So imagine that the world sees you living your life free from fear. What if they watch you and they do not see fear or the desire to live according to what others think? And I don't mean a calloused attitude where you say, I don't care what anyone thinks. I'm going to do whatever I want. Instead, if you are modeling a good life, one full of contentment and security, they're going to notice that. Courage is something that's infectious and it's an obvious quality in people. And being hopeful while living in this world, especially while suffering, is a courageous thing. There's nothing in our culture or in any history that encourages hope beyond or even despite the circumstances around you. So whether you refuse to pander to the new boss or you're willing to gently disagree with the cultural norms, people will see a strength and a beauty in your character. Peter says that some will even be led to ask for the reason for the hope that is in you. As we behave in ways that are countercultural, we will elicit questions. Now, sometimes the questions will be guarded and vague. Other times they will be so pointed that it shocks you. But regardless, if we are truly, if we truly live our lives for Christ and honor him in our hearts, some will ask ask us questions. So what are we to do when they ask us questions? Will you be too afraid of their disapproval to give them an answer? Or honoring Christ in your hearts, will you give them an answer? Peter says to always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks about your hope. You never know when someone will ask a question about your faith. It might be at work, might be on vacation with unbelieving family, or it might even be at the gym. It could even be while under attack from unbelievers. And in that moment, you cannot say, hold on, let me get something from the car. I need my notes. Peter says, always be ready. That means that you need to be able to give an answer right away even if you are nervous, how many of you feel that you could give a good answer to a question right now, if asked? How many of you have formulated in your mind some sort of gospel presentation? Now, I know all of you love the Lord and most of you have been living under the gospel for many decades. But can you explain something about your faith on the spot in a way that an unbeliever can understand it? Also know that not all unbelievers and not all situations are the same. If you have to give an answer on the floor of a courtroom, it's going to look very different than talking to your neighbor while getting the mail. What we're talking about is the methodology of apologetics. And the word for defense here can also mean apology. And I don't mean you're apologizing for what you believe. This is a type of, of an and an explanation of your views and why you believe them. You're trying to convince others of your view through this sort of apology. And that's what apologetics is. Apologetics is about learning how to share the gospel and to explain the truths of the scripture with the culture around you. Now, I could walk you through various views on apologetics. We could talk about classicalists, evidentialists, or I could even introduce you to my buddy, Cornelius Van Til, and his presuppositional view. Try say that ten times fast. And if you don't know anything about those views, I encourage you to look into them. I have several books on that topic that might be helpful. But here's the thing. Defending your faith and giving an answer does not require a degree. You don't have to study for years to be able to give a good answer. Everything you need in order to discuss and give a good answer is in these verses. 
Remember the main two-part command we have already discussed. Do not fear men, but honor Christ. That is supposed to be what leads unbelievers to ask about your manner of life in the first place. Your job is to explain that the reason for your hope and courage in life is because you no longer fear anything in the world. You serve and honor Christ as Lord, and therefore you're safe in his hands. And that really is the gospel in a nutshell. What you need to always be ready about is the truth about Jesus, what he has done for you in salvation, and what he has called you to live like now. And if you can put any of those concepts into words, then you have been a witness of the gospel in your situation. You don't have to teach the person the entire Bible at that moment. You don't have to give them a full lecture on the entire Westminster Confession right away. If you have an opportunity for about three sentences, say three sentences and depend upon the Spirit to to work and to move. So the question may be something like, how are you confident and happy with how badly the economy is doing? Well, joy does not depend on what men in the economy are doing. I serve Christ, and he's on the throne, therefore I can honor and trust him. That's a two-sentence answer summarizing exactly what Peter commanded in verses 14 and 15. But more than saying the right words, we also have to use them and say them in the right way. Saying the right words in the wrong tone or at the wrong time can do more damage than good. Peter says to do so with gentleness and with respect. Yelling about fire and brimstone through a microphone rarely has the intended effect. And that's not to say God can't use those methods. But Peter is very specific here about how we are to witness. We are to be gentle, calm, and always respectful with others, but especially when we are sharing the gospel. We need to remember that communication is a very complicated process. Nonverbal cues can send messages just as effectively as the words themselves. We need to send the right message with our words, tones, facial expressions, and even posture. Now, for the more headstrong among us, like myself, we can be sometimes so focused on the truth itself that we can present it in a way that is somewhat dogmatic and loses some gentleness. We can say everything right and yet cause the person we're speaking with to put up their walls. And once those walls go up, they're not really listening anymore. And so we have to work hard to be gentle and respectful. If we're being humble, as in seeking the other person's welfare above our own, then we will be gentle and respectful in our presentation. I think this is what Peter means when he says that we are to have a good conscience. We are to be sincere and above reproach so that no accusations may be brought against us. If we are mean, dogmatic, or harsh in our answers, then we have no reason to have a good conscience. But if we are honoring Christ and loving others, then we will not feel shame for anything. Now, it's easy to dwell on those conversations that we have with unbelievers. It's easy to overthink things after a conversation. What if I said that last line differently? Or what if I didn't mention that doctrine or that verse, or instead I used this verse? Relax. If you did your best and followed what this passage has taught you, then you need to tell your conscience to be at peace. God does not demand perfection, but faithful obedience. What about those who hear our answers and mock us? What about those who slander us and won't even let us give an answer in the first place? Remember that you serve Christ, and he is sitting on the throne reigning. So if we are walking with Christ faithfully, not perfectly, but faithfully, 
then there will be no ammunition for unbelievers to use against us. And so when we are slandered, reviled, or possibly even punished under the law, our persecutors will be put to shame, says Peter. They will be ashamed because everything they accuse us of or mistreat us for will be unjustified. There's no reason for their attacks, and so their hearts will be shown as callous and evil to their shame. The plans they hatch to shame us and Christ will fail. Now, commentators debate whether this is something that's going to occur in this life or at the final judgment. But I think forcing one over the other is incorrect. In fact, I believe the text prevents us from choosing only one of those two options. Because there are plenty of times in this life where believers are wrongly accused, treated poorly, and persecuted. But often they see justice done in this life and their persecutors punished. We've seen a number of court cases recently proving this very point. Recently, the Supreme Court ruled that a Christian baker had the right to refuse to bake cakes for gay weddings. Three Christians from Idaho were arrested a few years ago for not wearing masks at an outdoor psalm sing at their church. They brought a lawsuit against the city for the laws that they had wrongfully put in place, and they won. Roe v. Wade was recently overturned. Those are just some high-profile cases of late. But we also see smaller cases of vindication in our own lives. But we cannot say that it is only in this life that we see vindication, because oftentimes believers do not see any vindication in this life. It seems that most who mock and mistreat Christians are not shamed for their evil. So does that mean that Peter's words are wrong? Well, as Paul would say, by no means. We are promised that those who oppress the church will be shamed. That means that if it does not occur in this life, then it will occur on the final day of judgment. For those who are not shamed and punished now, God will one day judge. So for believers who do not receive vindication now, they will be fully vindicated on the last day. That is something that should give you, as the church, great confidence. Yet another reason not to fear men, but to instead honor Christ, is that any mistreatment you receive will be remembered by your Lord. In this life or in glory, you will be vindicated. So as you are glorified and made perfect in body and soul, you will be vindicated by the Lord. And what we will see next week is that Christ is the model of suffering for us. Not only was he reviled, though he was perfect in every way, but he was also put to death. But he also rose again and ascended into glory, fully vindicated by the Lord, bringing ultimate shame to Satan and his other enemies. And I say all that to make this point. Because Christ has risen from the grave triumphant and vindicated, so you who are in Christ will rise in glory, fully vindicated. And on that you may rest and rejoice. So I close with this command, the reminder from Peter. Do not fear man, honor Christ, and serve him alone. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the promises that you give to us. We thank you that you have promised full vindication fully making things right for your people. Lord, help us to honor you. Help us to cast out fear of man, fear of the world, fear of pleasing others. That's a heavy weight, a heavy burden, and a heavy idol to live under. Lord, help us to instead honor Christ as Lord, for you are our King, you are our God, and you will defend us, and you will protect us, and you will see your church flourish. And in this we rejoice greatly. Amen.